It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. You're listening to the Gluten Free Guide podcast with your host, Vanessa Weisbrod. Welcome to the Gluten-Free Guide podcast. I'm Vanessa Weisbrode coming to you from the Celiac Disease Program at Children's National Health System. I want to start out by saying a huge thank you to all of our listeners. We are so grateful for your support. And just a reminder that if you have a moment to spare, please head on over to the iTunes store to rate and review our podcast. Today's show is about the connection between our guts and our hearts. Recent studies have shown that people living with celiac disease have an increased risk of developing heart disease. One study published last year that looked at adults found that patients with celiac were almost twice as likely as healthy individuals to develop cardiovascular disease. Another study published in the Journal of Pediatric Gastroenterology and Nutrition looked at kids and found that by age 17, the prevalence of risk factors for heart disease was higher in adolescents with celiac than the general population. So what is this connection between our stomachs and our hearts? To help us dive into the topic, we have Dr. Michelle Midas Snyder, a preventative cardiologist from Children's National Medical Center in the studio. Welcome, Dr. Midas Snyder. Thank you. Thank you, Vanessa. I'm very happy to be here. So I want to start out by talking about why celiac disease could lead to complications with the heart. Is it a result of inflammation in the body, or is it dietary, or perhaps a little bit of both? Um, well, I would say it's much more than a little of both. And in fact, dietary factors and inflammation are very tightly connected. Uh, right up front, it's good to remember that cardiovascular disease remains the leading cause of death in America and globally, in America for decades and globally for the past 15 years and unfortunately rising. Um, after decades of decline in overall CBD cardiovascular disease mortality from heart attacks and strokes, the burden of this disease is picking up again in America in lockstep with the increasing prevalence of risk factors. Now age is far and away the most important risk factor but age is a relative term somewhat in that the age of our blood vessels can be delayed by healthy habits or accelerated beyond our chronological years by, years by an unhealthy lifestyle, especially an unhealthy diet, so-called inflammatory or Western diet that okay. we'll talk a lot about today. In fact, they say it is estimated very recently in an overview of this topic that fully 45% of all cardiometabolic deaths, so that would be heart disease, stroke, diabetes, are associated with suboptimal intakes, too much or too little of 10 dietary factors, too much sugar, salt, processed meat, and red unprocessed meat, and too little vegetable, fruit, whole grain, healthy fat, particularly unsaturated fatty acids in cold water fish, nuts, and seeds. We know... Uh, that with or without celiac disease, fewer than 1% of Americans are meeting the metrics of heart-healthy nutrition, and that's across all age groups, youth, 
through adults. That's really interesting, and I think it makes it even harder for people with celiac disease who rely a lot on packaged replacement products, and especially for kids who want to have, you know, those exact replacements. We did a a class this week where we looked at the labels on both a gluten-free and a gluten-containing, and in some cases, the fat and sugar and sodium were almost four times higher on the gluten-free products. Right. You know, we've been around this block before um, in that... When we became very fat-phobic the later years of the last century, you know, based on Framingham studies um, uh, that implicate in the Ansel Keys research that sort of set the American Heart Association on a fat-bashing track, mm-hmm. the whole intimate phenomenon that replaced fat with more simple carbohydrate to give flavor to food that was uh, devoid of fat, which is very flavorful, did not help in the battle against cardiometabolic disease, and, and we realized that that is at the core, unhealthy carbohydrate is at the core of an inflammatory diet. So if there may be a little bit the same phenomenon happening in trying to remove gluten to keep foods very palatable and flavorful, um, we're, we're compromising optimal nutrient value. Absolutely. So why does inflammation in our guts affect our heart? Well, there are a lot of reasons. Um, Inflammation acts to increase cardiovascular disease. We know through an association with abnormal blood lipids, elevated triglycerides, low high-density lipoprotein cholesterol, an increase in so-called highly atherogenic small cholesterol-poor LDL particles that more easily infiltrate the blood vessel and get stuck there and start the disease of atherosclerosis or hardening of the arteries. Inflammation also triggers insulin resistance as a mechanism to actually keep our blood sugar availability high to meet metabolic needs of an activated immune system that might be important in an infection, um, which is to say that an inflammatory trigger could be seen as a physiological response to threat, typically infectious threat, but this same inflammation can be a a risk factor when it becomes chronic. We we know that inflammation anywhere in the body affects our hearts as inflammation triggers this change in circulating lipids, cholesterol factors, and circulating sugar risk factors that travel throughout the body. But arguably, the most important common portal for inflammation is the gut, rather the full alimentary tract from mouth to bottom and that makes sense if we remember that this whole process of inflammation is, is our body's finely tuned process to use an immune system to protect us from infectious invasion from them, them being that microscopic profusion of bacteria and viral species we don't see, but we know co-inhabits the earth with us and in us, in our own bodies. Um, our own sort of opens up this new universe of the microbiome, our own estimated 10 trillion or so cells are outnumbered 10 to 1 by microbial species in the gut alone. And the microbiota also inhabit our skin and every other life form on the surface of the earth <laughs> above and below the ground. So pick your battles, right? Our own <laughs> right. system has had like a peaceable tolerance with all these microorganisms that outnumber us. And that tolerance is ensured by a nice, strong, healthy intestinal wall, this enormous interface between them and us that minimizes their infiltration. 
their capacity to pass into us. Anything that compromises the gut wall, therefore, can lead to what's called microbial translocation, travel across from their territory to our territory. And this is thought to be one of the central sources of chronic inflammation, effectively bacterial infiltration. There's also something we call sterile inflammation that happens when our mitochondrial health breaks down, mitochondria being the cellular power plants that we won't talk about so much today, but true, true, and related to a healthy diet. So you mentioned both bacteria and things that are compromising the gut wall. So food could compromise the gut wall, correct, if we're not eating the right types of food all the time? Absolutely. Diet totally affects this. Um, this, uh, In so much as food goes right through the gut, right? Right. It interacts not only with the microbiome. We're not just feeding us. We're feeding them. And we are thereby affecting the integrity of the intestinal wall with our diet. Um, We know now that diet plays a central role in gut health, intimately involved in either the prevention or the acceleration of inflammation through that portal, and therefore the acceleration or the prevention of chronic disease. This gets back to why we call a heart-healthy so-called Mediterranean-style diet anti-inflammatory. Um, the uh, recent advances in the microbiome suggest that fiber and nutrient density in particular are important for this dynamic relationship. There are functional changes in gut bacteria that can be directly related to fiber and nutrient intake and that impact the intestinal mucin barrier. Mucin is a critical glycoprotein in the mucus that lines our intestinal tract. And I'll mention, a state would have it, that my late and dear husband, John Snyder, was doing research on mucin as a postdoc at Mass General back when we first met in Boston. Wow. And that was long before anyone had a clue about now rapidly emerging field of the microbiome, but it was already appreciated that mucin was important for the integrity of the intestinal wall, and we know that it has implications for cardiovascular risk-related inflammation. We're still learning about how all this might work, but one very intriguing and um, elegant uh, piece of recent work shows us that dietary fiber deprivation will rapidly promote mucin-eroding microbiota species. In other words, if we're not feeding them with fiber in our diet, they will resort to digesting our own mucus glycoproteins as their nutrient source. Of course, will weaken intestinal integrity and can then lead to breakdown of the intestinal wall and that microbial translocation passage across the gut wall that activates our immune system and leads to inflammation. I'll add that that research focused on this intersection between diet and intestinal health can specifically be applied to gluten enteropathy. And, and you probably realize that imbalances in gut bacteria have been associated with celiac disease not only before diagnosis, but following a gluten-free diet, we know that, as you know, up to 40% of the population has one or both of the genetic biomarkers for celiac disease, but only 1% actually develops celiac disease. So there are critical mechanistic questions about why the immune response to gluten only activates disease in a fraction of genetically predisposed persons, and they may, that may be informed by 
better understanding of the microbiome, as well as some other novel biomarkers that dig deep into the roots of metabolism. Absolutely. So I think really the the take-home from all of this is that people who have celiac disease and are managing a gluten-free diet can't just think about the gluten-free element of their diet. That that being just because they're man- maintaining a strict gluten-free diet doesn't necessarily mean that they're doing all the things that are necessary to keep their whole bodies healthy. That they actually really need to think about the nutritional value of all of these foods that they're eating and how it not only affects um, the villi of their intestines but the rest of their body as well. Absolutely. I want to talk about some of these research articles, and what a lot of them have said is that people with celiac disease are eating fewer whole grains than healthy individuals. Why do you think this is happening when there are so many naturally gluten-free grains available? You know, I'm not sure anyone really knows that, Vanessa. Possibly cost is still a barrier, Um, though it has been shown that Americans overall are eating more whole grains as awareness of their nutritive benefits increases. In a recent survey by a U.S. Whole Grain Council, almost one-third of respondents say that they nearly always choose whole grains now. Five years ago, only 4% would have said that. Wow. And another third choose whole grains about half the time. Combined, therefore, almost two-thirds of Americans are making half or more of their grains whole. Some list taste preference for a reason when they don't, but... More germane, maybe, fully 40% of those who aren't eating whole grains list cost as the leading reason. So I think that could still be a barrier, particularly because the increasingly available gluten-free whole grains like amaranth, buckwheat, millet, quinoa, sorghum, tess, and even wild rice that's been around a little longer, they're more expensive than wheat and oats. Um, There may also be some lack of familiarity with these relatively new, if evolutionarily ancient, but wonderfully nutritive gluten-free grains um, that represents a barrier for people. I don't think um, in this line of thinking that it's a coincidence that in that same Grain Council survey that showed that whole grain intake is increasing, the most popular whole grain being used by respondents is wheat and second most popular oats, right? So even oats is a grain that has shown some cross-reactivity with gluten-reactive T-cells due to this um, protein avenin that's similar in function to gluten. Resurrection of ancient grains has a ways to go, both, I think, in increasing awareness and increasing availability and the cost point to really um, increase their adoption. But it would be better for everyone, whether or not they struggle with gluten sensitivity. Absolutely. And speaking of oats, um, just yesterday I was at the grocery store um, buying gluten-free oats. We like to make smoothies in the morning. Actually, this is a Blair Raber um, recipe. Um, For those who don't know Blair, she founded our celiac program at Children's National, and she is the smoothie queen. And so she she recently taught me how to make a smoothie (laughs) with almond butter and uh, gluten-free oats. And so I went to to buy gluten-free oats, and I was just Done. It was $8 for this package of oats, and it was sitting on the shelf next to a package of non-gluten-free certified oats that was $2. And I thought, wow, like, I feel really lucky yeah. that I can spend the $8 on a package of oats, but oh my goodness, just thinking about, you know, people who can't make that purchase, uh, you know, that's $6 exactly. difference. Exactly. 
Well, hopefully they will find new ways to bring down the cost of oats because they really are something that people should hopefully be able to incorporate into their into their diet. And there are lots of companies making right. gluten-free ones now. Yeah, gluten-free, exactly. So what would happen if a person were to totally remove whole grains from their diet and only rely on refined grains and processed foods? And I know that like just saying that it sounds ridiculous, but thinking about the gluten-free diet and the types of products that we purchase, so many of them are made from white rice flour because it's the cheaper option for companies. So it's very conceivable that someone on a gluten-free diet could get rid of all these whole grains very easily. Unfortunately, seen what happens when whole grains are removed from the diet and, and people rely on refined grains and processed foods. It has been well said by an endocrinologist and mentor of mine, Robert Lustig, that the last 50 years has been a grand clinical research experiment on processed food with the American population and increasingly the world's population unwitting participants. And this is an experiment basically conducted by the 10 principal investigators Dr. Lustig calls out, Coca-Cola, PepsiCo, Kraft, Unilever, General Mills, et cetera, et cetera, right? Yeah. The processed food companies starting back in 1965 posed the hypothesis that processed food would be better than real food. And to determine if that experiment was a success or a failure, it really depends on the outcome variable you consider. Certainly this kind of food production has been profitable if that's the outcome we're looking for, profitable for the processed food industry, and it has permitted globalization of brands, which is not necessarily our proudest American exports. But since our outcome of interest here is health, this massive experiment on America and on the world has failed dismally. A core feature of processed food is the removal of natural fiber, since fiber shortens shelf life and doesn't freeze so well. So it's fiber free grains that are much cheaper to work with. And uh, we've already discussed the importance of fiber for a healthy intestinal tract and a healthy microbiome that's going to be compromised in persons who continue to participate as unwitting subjects in this experiment, if you will, to carry out that metaphor. Now, processed food is also lacking in essential vitamins, minerals, essential fatty acids present in whole food, and we can live without them but we can't thrive without them because optimal metabolism and therefore optimal health needs optimal complete nutrition. Uh, finally, I'd say that even our bodies use sugar. Sugar is not the enemy here. Uh, sugar is the preferred fuel for a lot of metabolism, but our cells can't handle too much sugar too fast. And processed, it's all about speed of entry, processed carbohydrate, whether or not they're sweet, turns into sugar so fast that it overloads what we can use and therefore spills over into those dangerous lipid particles we were talking about that set up cardiovascular risk, triglycerides, cholesterol levels. They mess with our mitochondria, the energy function in our body, and contribute to insulin resistance, which adds to the cardiometabolic disease risk that just makes the work of metabolism and good energy production a lot harder. Absolutely. So, you know, as you keep saying all of these things, I'm sitting here like, oh my goodness, this is, it's really scary, you know, what is happening with the food manufacturing industry all around us. Um, 
So I yesterday during this class when we were looking at different gluten-free products, one of the, the products that we did a comparison for was gluten-free pasta. And we had a box of gluten-free pasta that was penne and, glut, and gluten-containing penne. And at first glance, you know, it wasn't that much worse, the gluten-free one. It had, you know... 10 calories from fat compared to one in the in the gluten containing um the carbohydrates were much higher in the gluten-free one and what was sorely lacking is there was no fiber and almost no protein in the gluten-free package where there were seven grams of protein and three grams of fiber in the gluten containing but the other thing was that the gluten containing was fortified. So it had added iron, vitamin D, thiamine, riboflavin, folate, um, vitamins A and C, where the gluten-free one had nothing. And so, you know, thinking about, okay, this isn't that big of a deal if my kid eats pasta a couple times a week, but then you think it's not just the pasta that has these um, deficiencies in it. It's pretty much everything that they eat in the gluten-free spectrum that doesn't have these added things into it. So then it, it would become a problem in the long run if they're never eating products that are that are fortified or contain that fiber and protein. Yeah, you're absolutely right on that, Vanessa. And um, it's it's really a, uh, a question in nutrition science that is yet to be answered, um, but I think provocative, whether taking out nutrients by removing fiber and essential vitamin minerals and fatty acids and then putting back the ones that you can supplement cheaply mm-hmm. with uh, readily available vitamins and minerals is as good as just eating the whole food that had it in there in the first place. <laughs> um, there's, a, there's something to be said for nature's understanding of balanced mm-hmm. nutrition. And I'm not sure we replicate nature's formulas, nature's recipes, as well as uh, nature gets it in the first place. The, um, the, 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 the There's a fun quote from... Again, this is Rob Lustig, as he mentored me in so much of this nutrition science and metabolism. And he says, when God made the poison, and he calls the poison sugar, he packaged it with the antidote, and that would be the fiber. You know, that if you, if you get your sugar, which is what all carbohydrate turns into and all plant food, whether it's right out of the ground or it's been processed, all plant food will turn into sugar. But if you take it out of the, the way it comes out of the ground, packaged with fiber, it is going to be balanced and the the speed of entry of that sugar will be slowed down into a pace that we can handle. Absolutely. So we want to be eating whole grains, but putting it in practical terms, how much whole grains a day should a person eat to consider themselves healthy? Um, There's a lot of uh, debate about this, but the, the, the 2015-2020, most recent USDA dietary guidelines for Americans recommend eating six ounces of grain food daily. That's based on an average 2,000-calorie diet. And getting at least half or three ounces of that grain from 100% whole grain. Now, an average serving of grain would be like one slice of bread. That would be one ounce. So this is like saying makes three of an average six servings of grain, whole grain. Okay. However, I'm partial to the Harvard Chan School of Public Health Nutrition Source. That's a resource in the public domain 
that is arguably much more evidence-based than the USDA that mm -hmm. is influenced by food industry. And they cite the increasing amount of research that shows the many health benefits derived from whole grains to cardiovascular health, cardiometabolic health in general, and the detrimental effects we've been discussing here of eating mostly refined grains. Therefore, the nutrition source plate model recommends choosing mostly whole grains instead of refined grains. Um, now, you need to know how you know, and you've been doing this in your classes, how you know if it's a whole grain. Well, an easy way to tell is that it's 100% whole grain is to be sure that's the first or second in the ingredients list, a whole grain. Or, on the nutrition facts, next to the line about two-thirds of the way down that says dietary fiber, it should read at least three grams or more of fiber in a serving. Better yet, just choose unprocessed whole grains, which unfortunately might leave pasta out of the list because that's processed, but there are so many available that we were speaking of earlier, amaranth, buckwheat, millet, quinoa, sorghum, kef, wild rice. That's the optimal way to get nature's wisdom in uh, nutrient balance and fiber into our diets. That, that target of six servings of grain, I think you have to remember the plate model when you think about your, what you eat in a whole day, because the plate model would recommend two times as many servings of fruit and vegetables, right? right? Half the plate is fruits and vegetables, as grain, which is only a quarter of the plate, and protein, quarter of the plate. Few people are eating 12 servings of fruits and vegetables a day. Right. Maybe some do, but that's, that's very filling food. So most of us, <laughs> you know, no matter how hard we try to eat healthy, don't. And more than 99% of Americans all ages don't eat more than one serving of produce a day, not wow. counting potatoes. <laughs> in so much as plant food is very high in fiber and nutrients that we need for optimal metabolism and can't get from grains, even whole grains, I think, and many argue, a more realistic target might be three to four servings of whole grain, and therefore six to eight servings of fruits and vegetables daily for the optimal balance in your diet. So I think that um, for people with celiac disease, they might, you know, they heard you list that whole list of gluten-free whole grains, but I think a lot of people don't know what those things are or even how to cook them. Um, we, in our, in our clinic the other day, we were Googling all the different whole grains and like ways to cook them that are easy. And what we found is that Bob's Red Mill, who's a producer of many, many gluten-free grains, has these really neat cooking videos on their website about all these different grains and, we, and ways to cook them. So I don't know. Have you ever cooked whole grain sorghum? Personally, I have not, but I, I uh, should explore it more. Now, not being gluten-sensitive, I, I, like many Americans, rely on wheat, but I have explored um, uh, certainly quinoa and amaranth and millet and uh, in some of my baking, and, uh, and barley is a big favorite, but that's not a gluten-free one. Yeah, I've done the same ones as you, but I've never cooked whole grain sorghum, and it was really neat to watch this video of how you cook it. They look sort of like um, barley pearls almost, and they cook just in, uh -huh. in water, and when they were they were fully cooked, it looked just like Israeli couscous. And that's something, obviously, that we okay. can't eat. But now I'm inspired to go try whole grain sorghum and cook it and, and serve it like I would have served couscous if it was gluten-free. Well, you've inspired me to try it, too. It sounds wonderful. <laughs> I'll send you the video. Um, 
So now we've talked a lot about diet and the food that we eat, but obviously we can't talk about heart health without touching on exercise. So how does exercise fit into this whole spectrum of having a healthy heart? The role of exercise is absolutely integral to heart health. Um, And this doesn't necessarily mean being a weekend warrior, you know, working out in the gym, um, but maintaining a steady level of activity. Even the current physical activity guidelines of 30 minutes of daily moderate to vigorous activity, one hour of trying to lose weight, are being toned down as we speak to align more closely with simply encouraging everyday activities like walking, stair climbing, lifting, just standing instead of sitting. Uh, Physical activity and nutrition are synergistic rather than additive, right? It's Mm -hmm. like two and two don't make four, they make 40 when you put them together. And I'll often counsel my patients that they can waste a lot of good nutrition if they're not moving. Exercise helps our muscles use the sugar fuel that comes out of carbohydrate in the diet and therefore reduces the need of our body to call on the hormone insulin to deal with those sugars. That's also called insulin sensitivity and it is the mantra, the central core teaching of cardiometabolic health. Another specific example of synergy between diet and exercise is the activation of important enzymes that are called lipases. These are proteins that make things happen in the body that reside on the edge of blood vessels and supply our muscles, um, sort of triggering these lipases only wake up and trigger the need to metabolize fats going to the vessels when the muscles have been moving. Mm So just as, just as for sugar fuel, if we don't use the fats, we'll call on our insulin to store them. Storage of energy is not a bad thing in moderation, right? Storage mm-hmm. of fuel for later use. But we have to move at some point to use them, right? Rather right. than being in a continuous unitary storage mode. Right. So since many of our listeners are parents of children who are living with celiac disease, what is your best advice for these parents as they plan for their kids' days when it comes to meals and activities so that they can really ensure that their kids have healthy hearts? Well, honestly, with the notable exception of staying gluten-free, children living with celiac disease benefit from the same heart-healthy guideline recommendations we give all children. Uh, Much of this we've discussed. It it bears repeating, Um, and it is easier said than done, right, in the world that we live in. But the eight overarching evidence-based goals that optimize lifestyle patterns and food choices are, one, first and foremost, to reduce simple carbohydrate intake, especially sugared beverages and processed foods. Uh, Just take them out of the house and, and substitute with real foods. Two, part and parcel, to substitute increased complex carbohydrate intake, especially vegetables and fruits. Three, make most grains whole grains. And four, make most fats healthy fats. And that healthy fat category we haven't talked so much about, but it opens up possibility of of nuts and seeds as very good snacks to substitute for a lot of refined grains. Um, five, optimate, opti- adopt a healthy meal pattern. That means avoid skipping meals and focus on real food. Six, decrease sedentary time to stand up more often. 
seven, increase activity through sustainable and everyday activities that move you, and eight, and finally, honor sleep. It seems <laughs> like a waste of time to be kids who might rather catch up on social media, but lots of the body's important work on metabolism that we've been talking about happens while we're asleep, and only when we're sleeping deeply. So basically, when we get our priorities out of the way, the body can do some of its critical housework to be ready for the next day. I um, would add, of course, that information is important. All this information is knowledge, and knowledge is power, but we know that knowledge alone does not change behavior. So, nor, I would, I guess, does the oft-perceived remote threat of cardiovascular metabolic disease risk. It's not as important to everybody else as it might be to me as a preventive cardiologist. So I like to cue children and their families to pay very close attention to how they feel. Here and now, when they start to make some of these recommended dietary changes and lifestyle changes, because these heart-healthy guidelines are proven to optimize insulin sensitivity that we were talking about that's so central to energy. That's a Kickstarter for better energy. It just feels better now. And then, of course, you have that added benefit of preventing downstream disease later. But um, it takes a lot of attention to providing a healthy environment in the home and encouraging kids to use healthy foods that are increasingly available, avail of themselves of healthy foods that are increasingly available in the schools. DC Healthy Schools Act is ahead of the curve on this with the whole grains, fruits and vegetables that they're serving every day, most of which are still not being eaten. They're going right to the wastebasket. We haven't won over the taste buds of all of the kids, even <laughs> yeah. as we try. So, it's a, you know, parents have to ally with us and help encourage use of healthy foods whenever they're available, right? That 12 servings of fruits and vegetables or, or six or seven, if you use the plate model we talked about and limit to, to three or four servings of grain, it means you have to eat them every chance you get. So parents can be part of that by making them available in the home and encouraging kids to avail themselves of it when they're out and about and, and practicing what, what they preach with their kids. You know, something that changed this year at my kids, so both my kids are in a, in a private preschool, and last year there were no restrictions on snacks. That pa- So every week the parents bring in a snack if it's your week. And last year the only restriction was no nuts. And there were terrible snacks that were brought in. And this year, it was absolutely outstanding. At the beginning of the year, the preschool director sent home a letter saying that each week the teacher would give you a checklist of the things that they wanted you to bring. And I was blown away when I got my first checklist of things that I could bring in for Brandon and Leo's snacks. The first time that I had to bring snacks, they asked me to bring in raisins, clementines, and cucumbers with hummus. And I was like, oh, my oh. gosh, that's amazing. It's like absolutely amazing. <laughs> um, and the second time it awesome. was it, the second time was grapes, uh, like string cheese and um, and sliced apples. So both times, I, I mean, I don't know if they've given other people other things, but they've always been naturally gluten free items that are like really good for my kids and now Brandon and Leo both come home asking all the time for hummus and cucumbers it's like their favorite thing now so yeah that's so fantastic yeah using using the that that positive peer pressure of 
kids eating healthy food together is really an opportunity we have in our schools. And, and I applaud what your school is doing, and what your kids' school is doing, and what uh, many schools are trying to do. And we need, we need to support that as much as possible. So now you just gave us this amazing list of things for kids. Is the advice any different for adults? Nope. In fact, it's well established. The kids are most likely to do what their parents do, not what they say, right? Absolutely. Uh, healthy lifestyle should be a family, should, should always be a family affair, one for all, all for one. <laughs> it's funny, the obvious things that can be proven with research sometimes, but there was actually a study done that showed children are much more likely to eat a vegetable if they see their parent or another trusted adult eating it with a smile. Um, and it sort of goes without saying that uh, the same is true for exercise, a family that's going to do active things together, model the behaviors that you want kids to um, to adopt is, is good for everybody. So do you have any last words of wisdom about maintaining a heart-healthy diet for our listeners? Well, if you have said it better than Michael Pollan, you may have heard his um, advice on this topic. He's a, a former New York Times science writer and, and now a very well-known food activist who quite simply recommends eat food, period. Not too much, period. Mostly plants, period. Now, he goes on to define food as nothing your great-grandmother would not have recognized as food. And that moves us away from this whole processed food phenomenon that has taken us down the wrong path metabolically. Um, we can be a little more specific about this, and some of the best evidence to date is on the heart-healthy benefits of the so-called Mediterranean diet mm -hmm. that follows these principles. Real food, mostly plants, not too much. But I think it's more appropriate, so as not to be too Eurocentric about it, to call out the blue zone diets. Blue zones are regions of the world with the best health, least cardiovascular and cardiometabolic disease, best longevity. Um, and they are have, have some characteristic uh, food patterns that differ dramatically from the high-processed, low-fiber, typical Western diet. Um, they stand in the Mediterranean. Obviously, there are some Mediterranean communities in blue zones, an Italian island of Sardinia, Greek island of Icaria. But there's also an Asian, Japanese island, a Latin area, the Nicoya Peninsula of Costa Rica, and even one in North America, the Loma Linda Seventh-day Adventist community in California. All these bastions that are called blue zones share the common denominator that was captured in those eight guidelines a moment, a question or so back, of avoiding processed food and sugared beverages and embracing water, plant-centered, nutrient-dense, real foods that are metabolically friendly for us and for our microbiomes, rich in vegetables, whole fruits, herbs, nuts, seeds, beans, legumes, essential fatty acids, olive oil, fish, fermented food, little but not too much grass-fed dairy and and meat. We, um, we've been focused on the food and nutrition part here, but the other blue zone commonalities that synergize with food, like daily movement versus the weekend warrior extra key, mm -hmm. uh, tight social networking, and this 
brilliant principle of what's called hara hachibu. It basically means pushing away from the table when you're only 80% full. So again, eat food, period, not too much, period, mostly plants. It kind of says it all. Yeah. And I guess you would add gluten-free. <laughs> yes. To be careful, you know, with, but, but there's so much, as you just illustrated in the, the, the beautiful trans, uh, transformation of the snacks at your children's school. There's so much food to celebrate. Yeah, that there really is. is. in adherence with those guidelines and is gluten-free. Absolutely. Well, I want to thank you so much for joining us today. This was wonderful information that I know is going to be so helpful to our listeners. And I just want everyone who's listening out there to please remember to pack your diet with whole grains and get up and be active. I don't care what you do. If you do jumping jacks, go for a jog, go walk around your neighborhood, just do something to get active today. So before we sign off, I've got our grocery shopping tip, which is brought to you thanks to the generous support of Giant and Martin's Foods. Did you know that almond flour is naturally gluten-free and packed with protein and fiber? This means that it's not only a great choice for people with, who are managing a gluten-free diet, but also those with type 1 diabetes. And almond flour gives baked goods a soft te- texture, so consider picking up a bag next time you're at the grocery store and try using it in your cakes, cookies, or pancakes. I hope you all enjoyed today's podcast, and we'll talk to you again next time. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, We've got clear runway, and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.